Gordon to come forward and read our text for this morning, um, which is Mark 12, verses 18 to 27. Mark 12, 18 to 27. Um, before Gordon comes forward and reads it, I do just want to introduce uh, the text that we're going to be looking at. And I want to introduce it with a line from a man named Mark Twain. Probably heard of Mark Twain. Um, Mark Twain has some really good lines, very witty man, and um, very intelligent man. And um, this is the line that I want to begin with. History doesn't repeat itself, but it often rhymes. History doesn't repeat itself, but it often rhymes. And that's true, isn't it? If you've ever read about the past, you'll realize um, that it's not that different from the present. Especially when you read about people in the past, you realize that people in the past weren't all that different from people in the present. And of course, the reason for that is that human nature never changes. And um, the type of people that existed 2,000 years ago are the same types of people that exist today. But... um, For example, think about this group, the Sadducees, in verse 18. Um, They're not all that different from um, types of people today. Firstly, um, think about what they believed. What did they believe, the Sadducees believed? The answer is, they didn't believe very much. Verse 18, the Sadducees said there is no resurrection. Now we read that and we think that what Mark means here is that they just sort of had different ideas about the afterlife. So the Sadducees believed in an afterlife, but they didn't believe that a physical resurrection at the end of time would be at all involved. But that's not what Mark is saying here and that's not what they believed. Their belief was far more extreme than just differing over the nature of the afterlife. Instead, the Sadducees didn't believe in any afterlife whatsoever. Nothing. The Sadducees believed once you're dead. You're dead. And that's it. No more. You just turn back to dust. And um, so that's what they believed. In other words, they weren't all that different from people today, from many people today, from many people, say, for example, with modern theological uh, liberal beliefs, so you have positions in the church but believe very little of what the Bible says. It's not that different. They didn't even believe in an afterlife at all. Secondly, I want to look at how they behaved. And again, it's not all that different from today, but the answer might surprise you. We tend to connect lovelessness to legalism. When we think people who are loveless, groups who are loveless, we tend to think who? We tend to think Pharisees, people who are really bolted down in terms of doctrine and believe all the doctrine. That's who we tend to think of when we think of of loveless people, and that's not wrong. But the Sadducees were just as loveless as the Pharisees. Now you see that in our text for this morning, which we'll get to, but I want to read the words of a first century historian named Josephus. Josephus, you might have heard of him, he was born in AD 37. So right there around the time of Jesus and the early church, a few years after Jesus was crucified. 
and Josephus was an historian. And here's what Josephus said about the Sadducees, this group that we're reading about in Mark. So this isn't Bible text, this is outside of the Bible. This is Josephus. Their behavior, quote, towards one another is in some degree wild. And their conversation with those that are of their own party is as barbarous as if they were strangers to them. That's how Josephus described the Sadducees. Their behavior towards one another was as barbarous as if they were strangers to one another. And it's really interesting when you think about it, isn't it? Here's this religious group that believed very little, were in a sense very modern and liberal in their beliefs, but rather than that leading to a whole lot of love and affection toward one another, it's the opposite. They treated each other like strangers. And like I said, that might surprise us, but it shouldn't surprise us. Instead, it's precisely what we should expect because the Sadducees, as Jesus says here, were strangers to God. They were strangers to God's word. They knew not the scriptures. And they were strangers to God's power. They knew not his power. And that leads where? That leads to not only being wrong, it also leads to lovelessness. And like I said, we see that lovelessness here. So if I could ask Gordon to come forward and bring our scripture reading for this morning, which again is Mark 12, verses 18 to 27. Thank you, Gordon. Mark 4, 12, 18 to 27. <clears throat> and Sadducees came to him, who say that there is no resurrection. And they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife, but leaves no child, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. There were seven brothers. The first took a wife, and when he died, left no offspring. And the second took her and died, leaving no offspring, and the third likewise. And the seven left no offspring. Last of all, the woman also died. In the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as wife. Jesus said to them, Is this not the reason you were wrong? Because you neither you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the book, how Moses spoke to him, saying, I am the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. May God encourage us through his word. Thank you, Gordon. Um, well, before we turn to the Lord in the text, let's turn to the Lord in prayer. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would speak to us this morning. We thank you that you are lowly and gentle in heart. And we thank you that you've revealed that through your Son, and his wonderful gentleness and lowliness. We pray, Father, that we would see Christ this morning, that we would see him in all of his love, and that we would be kept from lovelessness, that we would be kept from 
not only the lovelessness of the Pharisees, but the lovelessness of the Sadducees. Um, And we pray that we would do that as we um, are exposed to the power of your word, to your power in your word. Um, May you do that this morning. Help us now, for we are weak and needy. We thank you for this morning. We thank you for the wonderful privilege that it is to gather here this morning, and we pray that we would gratefully relish that privilege and that you would um, use this morning use this morning for our good and, and for your glory. And that I do pray that everyone here would leave um, edified and encouraged and exhorted and that you would convict us where we need convicting and rebuke us where we need rebuking, that you would refresh us where we are weary. Fix our eyes on you this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Wonderful. Um, so in verse 24, uh, Jesus gives his diagnosis of the Sadducees, this group I described in the beginning. And um, just think about that word diagnosis. Um, say you have a health problem and you're not sure what's causing it. And you go to the doctor and you tell the doctor your symptoms, and you have a scan, and you have some tests, and they put you on the Jason Bourne treadmill, and you have the mask hooked up, and all the wires coming off you. I don't know if that doesn't really happen at doctors. But anyway, just imagine that all of that happens, and the doctor examines you, and um, then you go back the next week, and um, the doctor says, here's what's wrong. Here's the issue. Here's what's underneath your health Jesus has done that with the Sadducees. Jesus, the master physician, has done that with the Sadducees. He's diagnosed their problem. He says, here's what's underneath all of that. Here's what's going on at the root. He diagnoses their problem. He says, this is why you're wrong. Your problem is that you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. As I said earlier, they were strangers strangers to God's word and strangers to God's power. Now just think about what it means to be a stranger now. What does it mean to be a stranger? There's that wonderful phrase, I think it may have begun in Australia, I'm not quite sure where it began, but people say, I wouldn't know I'm from a bar of soap. Right? It's, it's a wonderful exaggeration because obviously you would know the difference between a bar of soap and a person, but People say it to communicate, that guy's a complete stranger to me. So think about what it means to be a stranger. What does it mean? A stranger is someone you know nothing about. A stranger is someone you, you, you don't know what they're like. You don't know what it's like to be in their company. You don't know what it's like to be in their presence. You don't even know their name. You know nothing whatsoever about them, and Jesus says to the Sadducees, that's your problem, and that's true of you as it relates to God's word and God's power. You don't know it for a bar of soap. You you are complete strangers to his word and his Power. And what I want to look at this morning is where does that lead? Where does it lead when a person is a stranger to God's word and God's power? And then as we close, I want to flip it around. Is there anything that we can say about the opposite? Where the opposite leads? 
when a person isn't a stranger to God's word and God's power, where does that lead in turn? So that's what we're looking at this morning. Firstly, where it leads. Where does it lead when a person is a stranger to God's word and God's power? Well, the first thing to say and the obvious thing to say is it leads to being wrong. It leads to being wrong. So the Sadducees come to Jesus with this terrible argument. It is a terrible argument. You might have seen the movie The Castle. It's one of my favorite movies. If you haven't seen it, I highly recommend The Castle. But in The Castle, there's this courtroom scene where the lawyer resorts to this really terrible argument. He's really struggling to argue his case, and his argument ends up being... It's just the vibe of the thing. (laughs) It's just the vibe. (laughs) It's the way that it feels. This argument is that bad. This argument is that terrible. On the one hand, they cite Moses. Moses and God through Moses had said, if a man's brother dies and he doesn't have children, he should marry his brother's wife. And so this law was given by God through Moses as a way of protecting this man's deceased brother's name and and as a way of protecting his deceased brother's wife. In short, this law was given by God through Moses as a way of doing what? As a way of loving your neighbor. That's what it was given for. So on the one hand, the Sadducees put forward this law that was given by God as a way of loving one's neighbor. And then on the other hand, they put forward this ridiculous scenario. They say, what would happen if that happened seven times? What if this woman was like a black widow spider, in other words? What if it happened seven times? Now, this is something children do, isn't it? Right? Just this morning, Henry and I were talking in the prayer room, and he said, you know, what if a dragon walked in this room, it had five heads and one blue ice and the other blue thunder and the other blue fire and the other blue sand, and it was this crazy scenario that would never, ever happen and that's fine for children to do isn't it this is grown-ups doing that these are grown-ups and they put forward this ridiculous scenario and then they ask in the resurrection whose wife will she be the first one is that how it works the last one is that how it works the middle one is that how it works whichever one that she prefers is that how it works and their point is what It doesn't work. It's ridiculous. And the resurrection is ridiculous. And that's their argument. And don't miss this. They think it's a good argument. They really do. What I mean is, this is really part of the foundation of their refusal to believe in the resurrection. If you said to the Sadducees, now why don't you believe in the resurrection exactly? They would say, well, imagine there's a woman <laughs> and she's married and her husband dies and then her, you marry his brother and he dies and so on and so forth. And off they'd go with this silly story, which they think is a good argument. But it's a very bad argument for the very simple reason that there's no marriage in heaven, right? It's a sim- Jesus just can go up to their argument and just go like that with the half that 
they set up. Very silly argument. And Jesus just demolishes it in a moment, which you can imagine really disappointed them because it's all gone now. It's just a castle of sand. Their whole thing has just collapsed, and you can imagine them being quite disappointed. Not only that, though, and I do want to touch on this later, but I'll bring it up. Now, you can also imagine Jesus' response, not only disappointing them in the moment, but disappointing a lot of people now. I remember talking to a young man who was, I think he was engaged to be married at the time, and we were sitting at McDonald's, and he was talking about this verse, and he was talking about how disappointed he was. Right Here he is, he's so excited about getting married, so excited about having a wife, and then Jesus comes along and says there's not going to be marriage in heaven, and he was really, really disappointed. Like I say, I want to touch on that later, but for now, you not only see a sort of mindlessness in the Sadducees, in terms of their believing that this terrible argument is actually a good argument, there's also a heartlessness too. There's a lovelessness too. Firstly, think about the way they read this text. Here's this law given by God through Moses as a way for a man to love his neighbor, to love his deceased brother, to love his deceased brother's wife. And you just think about that scenario in real life. It would be a horrible thing to lose a brother and a horrible thing to lose a husband, especially in the ancient world. And God's law says in that situation, you should love your neighbor as you love yourself. And instead of seeing that heart behind the text, the Sadducees saw the issue with it, which wasn't even an issue. And so it's a very loveless way of reading the Bible, to completely miss the heart of the text and then to go to the issue, which isn't even an issue. But secondly, and perhaps more obviously, just imagine if one of these Sadducees was your pastor. Think about how loveless they would be as your pastor, as your shepherd. Remember, they not only denied the resurrection, they denied any afterlife whatsoever. So imagine if you did actually lose your husband or lose your brother and you went to them to find comfort. And what would they say to you? At best, they would say, well, he lives on in our memories. At best, that's what they'd say. At worst, they would say, well, imagine if this happened seven times. That's why we don't believe in the resurrection. At worst. So you think about how loveless they would be as pastors. What miserable comforters they would be to a person who was grieving. To just say, well, you're never going to see him again. You're never going to see your loved ones Again, and what makes it worse is that it was people's offerings who were going to support this whole system. So this is evil. Here they are, being paid by the people, and rather than comforting the people, taking away comfort as they played games with the Bible that was given to give them comfort. And I just want to say a couple of things here by way of application. Firstly, in terms of their bad argument, their, their being wrong. First thing, don't ever think that you're being thoughtful or mindful or sophisticated by moving away from the Bible. Don't ever think that. 
you hear people say the Bible is outdated. When it speaks about issue X, whatever issue X is, sexuality, gender, the afterlife, the resurrection, it's outdated. And people used to believe in things like the resurrection, but we're more sophisticated now. And I mean, that that's just not true. And ironically, it's that argument that lacks sophistication. As we see here, there were people in the first century who didn't believe in resurrections and who arguably had a far more extreme view of the afterlife than people have today. Most people today at least believe in an afterlife. The Sadducees didn't believe in any of them. So don't ever think that you're being sophisticated by moving away from the Bible and saying that the Bible is outdated. Secondly, don't think you're being loving either by moving away from the Bible. The great concern of many today, inside the church, outside the church, is this. People are desperate to appear loving and kind and tolerant. And for many people today, if you want to appear loving and kind and tolerant, many people think, well, that means we have to move away from the Bible. There's no way that I can appear loving and kind and tolerant and stick with the Bible. I have to move away from the Bible if I want to appear loving and kind and tolerant. I have to let go of what the Bible says about gender and sexuality and heaven and hell and Jesus being the only way. I have to let go of all of those things if I want to appear loving and kind and tolerant. And this might surprise you, but that is 100% true. If you want to appear loving and kind and tolerant, you have to move away from the Bible. You do. In our culture, you do. You have to do it. You have to let go of what the Bible says about gender and sexuality and heaven and hell and Jesus and all sorts of things. But just keep in mind, there's a world of difference between wanting to appear to others as being loving and kind and tolerant and actually loving others and being kind to others and tolerating others. And if you want to actually love people, truly love them and actually be kind to them, you don't do it by moving away from the Bible. You don't. You do it by speaking the truth in love, speaking the truth with a real living breathing love in your heart for whoever it is that you are speaking to. But here I want to return to the text. We've looked at where being a stranger to God's word and power leads. Now I want to flip that around. Where does knowing God's word and power lead? Look with me again at Jesus' words, reading verses 24 to 26. Jesus said to them, "Is Is this not the reason you were wrong? Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses in the passage about the bush how God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite So as we've just seen, the Sadducees are an example of of where being strangers to God's word and power lead. 
So this sort of mindlessness and this heartlessness. But do we have an opposite example? Do we have an example of of where the opposite leads, where where familiarity with the Bible and God's power leads, where knowing God's word and God's power leads? You've probably all seen those little example pictures. You know, you have the one with the, the red cross and then the green tick. This is how you shouldn't use the product. This is how you should. Do we have a, an example with the green tick? We have a good example of what it looks like to know God's word and know his power. And we do, don't we? We have it in Jesus. He knows God's word and he knows God's power. Firstly, Notice how well he knows God's word. Verse 26. In verse 26, Jesus shows such profound knowledge of Scripture. Just think about these words. Spoken by God to Moses at the burning bush. I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. You know, even if you believe in the resurrection that the Sadducees denied, you probably still don't read this verse like Jesus read it. Because how do we read this verse? Even if you believe in the resurrection, I, 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 my guess is your default in terms of reading this verse is that when God says, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob, we, we hear that and we think, I am the God of dead guy A, dead guy B, and dead guy C. Even though we believe in the resurrection, that's generally speaking how we read it. I'm the God of this dead guy and that dead guy and that dead guy as well. We read it as though God is saying, I was their God when they were around a long time ago and that was true then and I am here now. They're not here anymore, but I am here now. But Jesus doesn't read it like that. Instead, how does he read it? Well, he reads it in a living way. Verse 27, he is not God of the dead, but of the living. But not only that, he reads it in a wonderfully loving way as well. Because what is God saying when he says, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob? What does that mean? Well, it means not only are they still living, but I'm still loving them. Because I keep covenant with them. And those I keep covenant with, those I love, I won't forsake. Instead, I'll be faithful to them. And they're still alive. And I'm still loving them. And I'm keeping covenant with them. So it's a wonderfully loving way of reading the Bible. Because Jesus sees in this verse a wonderful love and faithfulness on the part of God that we miss. But Jesus not only knows God's word, he also knows God's And as with his knowledge of God's word, we see love here too. Here I want to return to what I said earlier. I mentioned the young man that I was talking to at McDonald's who was disappointed that there would be no marriage in heaven. And you might have been disappointed by this verse as well, the idea that there would be no marriage in heaven. But the wonderful thing is, if you read this verse, in my view, properly, Rather than being disappointed, we should actually rejoice immensely. And here's why. Why was that man disappointed? 
because marriage is such a wonderful thing. It should be, shouldn't it? Marriage is a wonderful thing. But then you ask the question, what is it that makes marriage wonderful? The answer is probably not what that young man was thinking. The answer is it's not the physical bond that makes marriage wonderful. It's the bond of love, the relational bond. Here's someone you know deeply and you love deeply, and that love bond transcends the physical bond, doesn't it? Even in this life, it transcends the physical bond, and that's what ultimately makes marriage special. That's the essence of what makes marriage special, that bond of love. And what happens in the resurrection? That doesn't get taken away. That doesn't get diluted. That bond of love that you only experience with one person in this life, it gets shared out, that bond of love. For lack of a better word, it gets democratized in the afterlife, in the resurrection. It gets shared around. So go back, just to make it concrete, if you're not following me, go back to their silly question of the seven brothers whose wife will she be. What's the serious answer to that question? The serious and beautiful answer to that question. As one man wonderfully points out. She won't be married to any of them. But the change that she'll experience in the resurrection will make her capable of loving all of them and make all of them capable of loving one another with full and perfect and pure love as a good mother today loves all her children and is loved by them. That's what's going to happen in the resurrection. And the Sadducees couldn't conceive of that. They couldn't conceive of a life beyond this one, let alone a life beyond this one marked by a love like that. Can you conceive of it? Do you know God's power? You might say, I can't conceive of feeling any differently to the way I feel now. God's power is such that he can work this love in you, even now, so that you begin to love others in this way, in this life, And at the resurrection, that will be made complete and full and perfect. But the question as we close is, of course, how does he do that? How does he work this love into us? The answer is he does it by showing us his love and his son. He is the perfect example of someone who knew God's word and God's power and loved perfectly and fully in light of that. And we see that in four days on the cross where he'll show us the greatest example of love, dying for us while we were yet sinners, while we were yet loveless. May we look to him and every every day grow in our likeness to him until the day we will be perfect made, perfectly made like him, perfectly loving, because we shall see him as he is. Will you pray with me as we close? Our gracious Father, we pray that you would grow us in our love, that we would say with the psalmist, the saints in the land, the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. We pray that we would begin even now and we would continue even now to be marked by the love that will perfectly and fully mark us in the resurrection at the end of time. May you do that for our good and the good of our neighbours and your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.